house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast modeled on trash. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy or the disembowelment in the, you know, uh, bowels of our uh, dance academy. We're going to throw our hooks into whatever we're talking about today. (laughs) Let me tell you, honey, the hook brings you back. Ha! (laughs) <laughs> unofficial theme to 2018 Suspiria. Somebody definitely um, cut a Twitter video to the trailer when it first came out, set to Blues Traveler's Hook, and I it mean, was sensational. I can't remember who the hell did that because, you know, what is time? Internet, T- right. Tweet, yeah. Tweets are nothing but, you know, uh, disintegrated into ash uh, eventually. It's true. Um, I am your host, Chris File. I'm here, as always, with a man who is definitely not just Tilda Swinton in an old age suit. It's Joe Reed. Uh, I am. I am, but a uh, humble psychiatrist. I can't. I can't. Now I'm doing French for uh, German. My German is possibly worse than my French at this point. It's basically so what Tilda Swinton was doing too. So it's yeah. Um, weirdest part about that movie, and that's saying something because there no, was a it lot- is not. Yes, I think so because everything else that's weird about this movie feels like it it is an extension of the fact that it's a remake of Suspiria. Like nothing about the fact that this was a remake of Suspiria called out for Tilda Swinton to play uh in addition to her her own role. Um uh Dr. Klemperer and also to pretend that she was an actor named uh Technically speaking, Tilda Swinton is playing Lutz Ebersdorf playing Dr. What was his name? Klimperer. Klimperer. Dr. Klimperer. Yeah, Lutz uh, Eversdorf. But like, and also, uh, Lord knows I love Tilda Swinton. But like the thing where like she was at Venice or whatever and being like, I don't know what you're talking about. It was a man named uh, Lutz Eversdorf. And I was just like, okay, all right. I guess we're going to keep this charade. Especially when... It was leaked while they were filming these set photos that people were like, "Right, nobody was to see Tilda Swinton in costume." And then here's this one, and they're like, "Here it is, you guys. She's in old age makeup playing this man." Like, yeah, it, it it. If I had gone into this movie cold and had no idea about anything that was going on, it would have taken me like six seconds to just be like oh it's tilda swinton in old age makeup she's playing the doctor for some reason like okay. i i still think that that is far from the weirdest thing about this movie Rewatching this movie reminded me that 
I maybe don't understand half of what's going on in it. Yes. I, so I did a little like diving around and like watched a bunch of like explainer videos and read a lot of reviews and sort of, I, I think I have a better sense of what is going on than maybe I did the first time. The first time I was very much content to just sort of like let it wash over me, you know, the sights and the sounds and, and how yeah, creepy like the it movie was. is just like a soup of, you know, late seventies German politics right. and, you know, feminist theory and, you know, all within this package of less of a remake of Suspiria than like kind of a visual essay on what the themes of the original affected Luca Guadagnino as, you know, a future filmmaker, you know, which um, is fine with me because totally fine with me too. uh, When it's a for, for this probably applies to any remake, but especially a, a remake of a movie that is, both this like held up as you know a standard bearer in a genre and also a cult thing and also uh from a filmmaker as specialized as Dario Argento like mm-hmm. there is no way to go about remaking and i guess you can make the argument that like why remake it at all fair but if you're going to there's no way to approach it but to do something like that is completely like perpendicular yeah, like it belongs to a completely different horror subgenre than the Argento mm-hmm. original, which is a giallo film. This is more like right. What even like? <laughs> well, it's. Um, it, I think you said said right. It was almost like an essay or a meditation on on the themes of it, on the themes of the movie as they related to the times that the movie was made in, which right. a lot of people really didn't. Like, that was a lot of people's least favorite aspect of the movie, the way it sort of ties in 1970s German politics to the movie. I thought it mostly worked for me. I think you could make the argument that they could have made that more backgrounded and let it be more sort of subtly thematic, and I probably would have agreed with that. But I think it mostly works for me. And it made me curious about sort of what else was going on. And I sort of did my little supplemental reading and, and, you know, dug into things like the Batter Meinhof group and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Wasn't expecting to just like show up to this movie that I was very excited for at the time and be like, huh, this is like, you know, a kind of academic essay on the Batter Meinhof complex. Yeah. Had huh. you ever seen that movie, by the way? The Batter Myself Complex? I had Complex? not. Um, nor had I. But that's the only thing I really knew about that uh, that moment was the title of that movie, which is funny because there is a psychological theorem called the Batter Meinhof effect. That is, uh, it's called, uh, I think it's called reinforcement theory or something like that. What's essentially the thing is once you hear of something for the first time, you will experience it more frequently after that or once you it's sort of that thing i think i maybe mentioned that here before. it's that thing where you know you are trying out a dance routine and meanwhile your contemporary who has been ostracized is uh having their bones systematically broken <laughs> in rhythm to your dance moves 
Yeah, not quite that. No, it's the thing where, like, you and your family get, like, a Dodge Caravan, the dark blue Dodge Caravan, and all of a sudden you start noticing all the other dark dark blue Dodge Caravans, and your mind thinks, oh, now there are more of these than there used to be. And it's like, no, you're just noticing them more because you're more aware of it. That's sort of the psychological theorem. But anyway. It's like you become a witch, so you notice that everyone around you is also a witch. Right. And it came out because this one person had, like, heard of the Bader-Meinhof group, and then, subsequent to that... Felt like he was hearing about it and seeing references to it everywhere. And it's like, no, they were probably always there, but you weren't noticing them until you learned what this was about. Which is funny because now that I only know about this piece of history through the title of that movie, now all of a sudden, whenever I see it, I'm just like, oh, this must be like an effect of that movie. And it's like, no, it's, you know, it's kind of the other way around. But anyway... That's a long way around the, <laughs> a the block movie to that intro this movie. I think I can, from moment to moment, explain very little about what's going on in the movie. But yet, you walk away from it with like this kind of real intense reaction and understanding of what this movie is attempting to do thematically. That it's like, I think the business of the movie, the like what is happening moment to moment and what is the subtext and the context of it moment to moment matters less than I think the way uh, Guadagnino gets his ideas across, which I understand why a movie that does that frustrates as many people as it does, or, you know, people think that the movie is bad. Like, but I, it's funny that you put it that way Uh because I feel like, I had the exact opposite, which is I felt like moment to moment, I knew I knew pretty well what was going on just in terms of like, you know, now Susie's at the Academy. She's got to prove herself. Now Sarah is suspicious of what's going on. She's sneaking around. Now these witches are, you know, whatever, uh, transfixing the mind of this cop and are sort of torturing him. And now they're trying to find a body to transport uh, Helena Marcos's spirit into. And like, and now they've, you know, somehow brought back Dr. Klemperer's wife and are sort of, you know, bewitching him with this. And like moment to moment, I sort of got it. And just sort of like, until you get to the end and then you're just sort of like, what the fuck is happening? But I mean, maybe I, I understand like what is happening in the first, you know, to even say the first hour of this movie is really not that much of the movie. Like the audition happens like a half hour into yeah. it. Like yeah. it's a long ass movie. We will talk about that as we go on, but like, no, I definitely, my experience with the movie, which was very reinforced by this, by this rewatch is that like, I understand how I'm supposed to feel about what I'm watching. And I know what's supposed to unsettle me, but like, I don't know what's going on. See, to me, the struggle was, I really struggled with what, like, what is this movie trying to say? What is, what is the purpose of sort of this, uh, this swirling of German history and this witch's coven and why, are we telling these two stories in tandem? What does Dr. Klemper's experience with the Holocaust have to do with what this movie is trying to say? Like it, it's, it's, you know, two times watching it and then really sort of like, you know, swirling my mind around it for the last 12 hours. Um, 
I think I have a I think I have a good sense of at least some of it, but like the the bigger pictureness of it is the struggle for me with this movie. Mm-hmm. But I'm a dum dum, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think you're a dum dum. This movie does make me feel kind of stupid. Like, why can't I follow this like horror movie that is basically uh, you know a riff on a horror movie that I've seen many many times, mm-hmm. um, and like over a long period of my life too. So it's like, I, I understand and get that text. But then again, the original also, I had times, especially when I was younger, where it's like, what is suggested to be happening? I didn't necessarily understand. Like a lot of the finale, I was like, wait, I don't, because of the imagery of it, like what is right. physically happening in this space right now? I didn't fully understand. And I, and I think with Argento, with that movie, but like with, the other stuff that I've seen, it's funny. The, I think the only Argento movies that I've seen are the three, the Suspirium movies, the, uh, the, uh, one about mother Suspiriorum, the one about, um, well, I can, now I can't remember, uh, Tenenbranum and Lacrimanum. I'm trying to remember shit. They're not in front of me. You know, the three, whatever, the three mothers. Uh, those are the three movies that I've seen. The Suspiria, Inferno, and weirdly, the first one that I saw of the three of them was Mother of Tears. I had just moved to the city and a friend of mine was going to see uh, Mother of Tears, which was the new Argento movie. And I was like, well, I've heard of Dario Argento. I'll go see this movie. And it sucks. It's like oh. really bad. Um, and so I was just like, oh. And then it wasn't till like a few years later that I finally saw Suspiria. And then I finally saw Inferno like literally last weekend um and weirdly before we had decided to do this movie i had just sort of like randomly decided to watch inferno because uh um because it's october because it's spooky season and his movies are like there's obviously this sort of overarching mythology to it with three mothers and they're sort of one's in new york and one's in rome and one is in germany and um but Mostly, it's just sort of like they're pretext, right? This this mythology is pretext to telling these very lurid, very colorful, very uh, you know bloody and you know sometimes leering sort of horror movies, and that's fine. Like that's you know that's sort of it's letting Argento play in the particular playground that he likes to uh, make his movies in. And Guadagnino, again, decided, and with his screenwriter, whose name is David, uh, how are we pronouncing? probably. Sure. Um, Screenwriting who, partner of him. They've worked together before. They did uh, a bigger splash. On yep. the movie I would call uh, Guadagnino's masterpiece, A Bigger Splash. Yeah, A Bigger Splash is very good. I mean, I'm still a Call Me By Your Name loyalist, but, you know, um, Bigger Splash is great. And... That was his first time working with Dakota Johnson, who uh, rules. We should uh, we should say we'll definitely get into that. We'll get into Dakota. We'll get into the tilde of it all, of course. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot to sort of like pick apart in it beyond the fact that it's kind of wild that this movie had Oscar buzz, even though it was a it was a, a based on an original movie that would not communicate the idea of having Oscar buzz at all. It's all entirely, see the timeline of it is, which we'll get into with Guadagnino is super fascinating to me. 
um, in relation to Call Me By Your Name, because a lot of it is based on Call Me By Your Name. Um, for the the buzz, the yes. buzz for this, because like yes. this was a movie that was kind of like spoken of in Oscar prediction, like articles and such throughout the year. And I was like, are you out of your fucking mind? Well, but I guess we're doing this. And it kind of really took the release when it bombed in theaters and like the mixed critical reception for the movie to really take it out of those conversations that like, to me, I was like, well, it doesn't matter if this movie's great. They're not going to go for a Suspiria remake. Well, it was an odd Mobius strip of logic, right? Which I sort of followed for a while, which was, and I'm obviously you're right. The fact that like, call me by your name was such a big awards player that year, even if it never properly released and never sort of was allowed to build the kind of popular uh, momentum that it might have, who knows? Um, but anyway, it was a big deal. It was a big awards movie that year. And because of that, his follow-up movie was going to get buzzed no matter what. And this follow-up movie had a lot of attention. It was Suspiria. But I think we, because of that, because there was this like, oh, well, the next Luca Guadagnino movie is going to have awards buzz. And they're like, but it's a remake of Suspiria. And yet all of the little things about it um, sort of at least... I, you know, and, you know, whatever, good on you for being, you know, resistant to this the whole time. And, you know, um, I'll send you a little badge. But um, <laughs> I think the fact that Suspiria is a horror movie, but it's also in its own strange way, kind of an art movie, right? Where it's just yes. like, well, Luca Guadagnino making an art movie is interesting. Luca Guadagnino sort of remaking this, like, masterpiece of very, uh, you know, colorful and artistic horror you could sort of mentally walk yourself down the path of well he's going to do something very artistic and impressive with it and it's going to and i know this is a loaded term for whatever but it's going to like elevate past the level of you know mere sort of lurid horror and for a lot of people that was like well maybe there's an angle in that maybe there there will be um and the fact that he was reteaming with Tilda Swinton, uh, who had gotten uh, some degree of awards buzz for I Am Love, and um, and a bigger splash, I think, by that point, had become very much of like, you know, the people who really loved it were like, y'all missed the boat on a bigger mm-hmm. splash, and you should Hello. have, you know, appreciated it Yours more than truly. you did. So there was a lot of... You know, there was a lot of angles through which we could convince ourselves that, like, no, the Suspiria thing could happen if it is this specific type of take on the movie. And then, ironically, when it was released, the fact that it was this, like, very heady and intellectualized reworking of uh, this art film and sort of treated it as an art film rather than a horror film in a lot of ways, even though there's a ton of horror to it. That was part of the reason why a lot of critics didn't like it. And that was part of the reason why ultimately the buzz, beyond the fact that it is what it is and you show this movie to an Academy Awards voter and they're going to like weep in a corner. Um, (laughs) If they finish the fucking movie. But it wasn't even able to sort of ride on this wave of like unanimous critical support. There were a lot of people in in the media who really liked it. But well, um, and I I would qualify like my reservations about this at the time being a potential awards player. Like if this was a better received movie, you could absolutely see it receiving something like an art direction, art direction, or yeah. a cinematography nomination. It like 
it's one of those things that I do question, you know, there, there are, you know, um, anomalies like the Wolfman remake getting nominated or like things when Rick Baker was, you know, working and creating things that I'm like, horror makeup really does deserve uh, more credit within the makeup and hair styling category. And you could see, it is surprising to me that Suspiria didn't get further ahead in that. Yeah. Very specific campaign, not just because of the horror element, but because of the Lutz Ebersdorf of it all, where it's like you they could have treated that campaign like they treat old age makeup or like the makeup from the man who crawled out the window and came down a mountain and and did a little (laughs) dance. Right. That thing. But Chris, I'm gonna back you up for a second. Right. I'm gonna back you up for a second because you managed to mention Rick Baker winning for the Wolfman and you did not properly pause. You did not properly pause for me to insert the clip of Kate Blanchett saying that's gross. And I'm just gonna say we need to we need to make room because that's gross. That's gross. gross. Okay. Um, but yeah, I did think it was kind of ironic that the fact that Luca Guadagnino tried to do an artsy fartsy take on Suspiria was a big reason why it wasn't a sort of unanimous critical success. And that Mobius strip sort of completes itself then and, uh, and continues to go on and on and on. But anyway, um, lots going on, a lot of moving parts for this movie. It's a lot and, of movie. Uh, we're going to get into, we'll probably get into the Tom York of it all. And, uh, the Amazon Studios of it all. There's a lot. Listen, to, a this lot is to... an episode we record for ten months before uh, <laughs> planning in front of everybody. We're going to get into the bulk of it, right? Yes. Um, we should probably you should probably put me through my paces of a plot description before we get too far. Uh, yes, <laughs> I have. Uh, I, I'm usually because I'm terrible at the plot description. Usually happy uh, to not have to do it, but this week I am maybe more happy than ever to not have to give the 60 second plot description of Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria. Joe, are you ready to do so? Yeah, I sort of, I jotted down a bunch of notes and I've, I've tried to keep it to the bare bones because I know if I like follow all the tangents down the little hallways of this movie, then uh, the bare bloody bones. I will uh, get stuck. This is also a two and a half hour movie. So like have mercy on me for trying to condense this plot, but uh, we'll do, we'll do the best that I can. I remember this movie being see, uh, me seeing some of the stupidest is it movie or TV takes, which like Wait, is really? always a take that I saw. Yes, because of the chapters of the movie, people were like, oh, you know, kind of, and I was like, are they joking? And then they kept going, and I was like, oh my god, people you... are so stupid. I am leaving the timeline forever. That's um, a wild take. Can you imagine splitting this thing up? Like, and they were like, but it's breaking on your... Amazon. Oh boy. Jeepers, uh, people creepers, are so people. dumb. People are so stupid. Uh, it's about maintaining I, the mood, I people. You got to trap so yourself. I can say that I am very you gotta stupid. So I trap yourself it. into this movie for two and a half hours. That's the only way it works. And a lot of people still don't think it works, but I do. Anyway, all right, Joe, are you ready to give a sixty-second plot description of Suspiria? Yes, I am. 
All right, your time starts now. All right, picture it. West Berlin, 1977. Amid all the turmoil of hijacked Lufthansa flights and the Bader-Meinhof group, there is a dance academy that is secretly run by a coven of witches. Chloe Grace Moretz was a dancer there until she figured it out, and she took her suspicions to her shrink, Dr. Klumper, before going missing entirely. Enter Susie Banyan, the new girl at the school who grew up super repressed to Ohio Mennonite, but quickly displays her superior dance ability and impresses the head instructor, Madame Blanc. Meanwhile, there's a struggle for power going on behind the scenes between Blanc and an unseen Madame Marcos. So Susie advances at the academy, often to the detriment and sometimes broken bones of the other girls, and Blanc and the witches are clearly seconds. grooming her for something big and sinister. Blanc starts sending Susie her dreams, which are a kaleidoscope of horror. Fellow dancer Sarah gets suspicious of everything going on and seeks out Dr. Klemperer about uh, Patricia, and on the night of the big dance she discovers a deteriorated Chloe Grace Moretz and other disappeared dancers, but it's too late because the ritual has begun and they plan on sending Marcos' Ten spirit seconds. into Susie's body as a vessel, only whoops, Susie is actually the ancient mother's superiorum, and she murders Marcos and all her loyalists and takes her place at the end at the head witch and she's nice and she lets dr klemper forget the part time. where his wife died in a concentration camp the end I almost joe we actually have some breaking news we need to cut into 538 marcos is leading the polls in the <laughs> western block um do you have any uh current takes on this i know that it has been a tight race yeah, the arrow. Um, the arrow on is the currently favored to win the Western Bloc. Yeah, the arrow on the New York Times is uh, little meter is pointing heavily to Marcos. They're uh, they're thinking about calling it, but they haven't called it yet. But if you're in line at the polls, stay if in line. If you are in line for Blanc, stay in line. Blanc voters, stay in line at the polls. They have to let you vote if you are in line to vote for Blanc. So. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Marcos Blanc is my favorite. Anytime there's an election of any kind, I will be the dumb bitch who comes in with a Marcos and Blanc joke because I can't help it because that is, uh, that's, that's the way I've been cursed. That's the curse of me and Suspiria is I will forever wander the halls of my life making, uh, Blanc and Marcos jokes. But my joke is that Mother Marcos great makeup wild makeup but mother marcos looks like the sunglasses emoji like just like hey she looks like a cool person like wait that's why your that's why your letterboxd review ends with a (laughs) yes it's so weird me as various tilda swintons um oh my god mother marcos who is like not revealed in full until the like wild ending scene just seems like a cool chick who bought her some oakley's she's not a cool chick she's trying to take over That's the body how she's of lured this... all these people like she yeah. is evil and she is bad and you know i guess in the grand metaphor of this thing she might be a nazi or something so she she's looks not cool but like the, <laughs> the oakley guys, did it that's guys, how it recruited all even these if people. they're wearing sunglasses nazis are not cool nazi witches are not cool no, no. chris she looks like pizza the hut and she's you know <laughs> she's melting down there in her little you know catacombs or whatever and she does have the sunglasses so yes you do feel like she was the subject of a meme where she was just sitting down there in her catacombs her body sort of melting away and then the sunglasses like descended upon her and (laughs) And it's uh, like cool 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 marcos yeah um she was also like she's like you know what we're not winning these pool these polls (laughs) we have to do something to change my image right right um and Suspiria. Then, you know, one of one of her minions is like what if we got you some sunglasses 
<laughs> it will change our image. We will get... Uh, you will seem very cool. The young people really love the sunglasses, Matamakos. People will be like, but she is a Nazi. And then <laughs> someone else will say, but she looks so cool. <laughs> oh, This God. is more like Swedish than German. As we've noted before, I'm not great at impressions. More like Dario, Dario Argento to the polls. Uh, that's, uh, that's my... Uh, my Hillary Clinton impersonation. That's our episode, guys. Thanks. Bye. Um, Gotta go. Okay, so this is this is where I'm like, maybe I don't understand the thematics or you know the the German politics of it, and maybe it's because I'm stupid and I'm a dum dum. But are the Marcos people supposed to be representative of like late generation Nazis? I think so. So this is where I've come out of uh, my meditation on this movie. And my best, and I don't think it's all of it. I think there's a lot going on in, you know, in the thematics of this. But my best encapsulation of the theme of this movie is you have, like, Blanc talks about when she uh, talks about the the Volk, the dance that they uh, that they're going to perform. That it is a dance of rebirth, and of course she says rebirth, and your mind goes, "Haha!" It's because you're having a rebirth ritual downstairs later, and the rebirth is supposed to be Marcos, this sort of like decayed, melting, ancient, thousand year old woman who shouldn't be alive. Uh, is going to extend her life unnaturally by taking this beautiful young vessel in Susie Banyan and transporting her spirit into her and basically taking on this shell of this young woman, and that is going to be her rebirth. And and what the movie, I think, is saying by, you know, Susie sort of thwarting this and slaying all the Marcos voters is you can't have a rebirth without purging the the wickedness of the past right you can't have it doesn't count as a rebirth if it's just you're the old generation finding a new skin a new more palatable skin to walk around in right right and i think that's what the 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 german autumn the era of this year 1977 was doing which you had these young people being like we're only 40 removed 40 years removed from the holocaust not even and all of these people in positions of power are former Nazis. Like, what the, what's going on here? This society that is trying to pretend like we've moved on and trying to, like, sort of bury the sins of the past. And But it's just like, yeah, but the head of the, like, you know, Better Business Bureau in Munich or whatever the fuck is, like, it was a Nazi. And, and so, and there was this anger among the young people and this revolutionary impulse among them to just be like, no, like, sweep them all out like get rid of it start over a genuine rebirth and i do feel like that is if not the whole thing i think a big that's the big i think thematic thing which is that this coven cannot you know go through this rebirth without being like no we're sweeping out the old like we're getting rid of all of it and and i think that's sort of what dakota johnson as you know Susie as mother suspiriorum is doing and as as much as it felt like uh, a palpable you know thematic note post-trump election yeah. it feels like because of some of these themes it will be more relevant you know as we kind of age with this movie possibly yes. that's like, sure 
Yeah, I mean, you look at, I mean, this movie didn't, couldn't have anticipated January 6th, but like, that's a similar thing that's what's going on now, which is just like, how are we moving on without addressing the fact that all of these people in Congress supported this fucking, you know, insurrection that happened? And, and I think that's, it's a, it's a theme that will recur through history, unfortunately. In various different forms. In various different forms, yeah. So this movie, and I want you to talk about this because I feel like you have a better grasp on this than me. Um, Argento, or uh, Luca Guadagnino had the rights to this movie since, like, he was saying, I saw an interview, and I think he was saying, like, he had had his designs on Suspiria since, like, the late 90s. Like, he had some yes. sort of, like, and for a while there, it was going to be David Gordon Green who was going Which to... I thought they were, originally thought they were competing, competing projects, yeah. no. but it turns out, in doing a little bit more research, they might have been linked up at yeah. some point or another in the process. Yes. Eventually, when David Gordon Green passed over the project, right. uh, it was with the intention of, Luca will make his movie. Yes. Um, that is which, what it was. <laughs> considering what I David know. Green has done to um, bastardize, destroy um, other uh, horror, uh, yeah, iconic, this uh, you know institutions uh, for the better. Um, but like we he- we would hear about uh, David Gordon Green's version of the of Suspiria for well over a decade for a long time it was supposed to be Natalie Portman and of course that always that came back up in the news uh, when she was doing Black, Black Swan, Swan. Yeah. with all of it because of course it's another ballet horror movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but like he had had various people attached like Judy Dench rumored at one point Isabelle Huppert uh, once Natalie Portman had moved on from it it was going to be uh, the orphan from orphan Isabel Furman sure um, sure you can see all of these people in versions of this movie right you can sort of yes. like you can you can conjure it in your head I think an idea of a, a movie where a coven is made up of Judy Dench and Isabel Huppert and Janet McTeer like fascinates me throw Tilda in there as well fine like cool um I Yes, I think the weekend after Halloween Kills premiering is probably not the best weekend to be sort of wistful about what the David Gordon Green version of Suspiria would be. And I should make it clear. I mean, I hated the first. I know. Again, uh, you're bad. That he got his hooks in. Your I medal is in the mail, Chris. You. Not, get the I am not asking for a medal. I am saying I. Uh, everybody has changed their mind because of Halloween Kills, and some no. of us were right all along. No, on what his. POV was on what that franchise should be and I stand been, by everything uh, that I said about the f- the first Halloween remake which was it's fine and I think I still stand by that it is such a better movie than Halloween Kills because it has at least a simple idea and executes it to the best of its ability The finale of the first David Gordon Green Halloween is I will I will uh you know be humble here and say that finale is spectacular but all of his ideas and his approach to that material is not just like bone knockingly stupid but um 
the wrong friend. He, he doesn't understand who Michael Myers is and represents. Like the Michael Myers he creates is not Michael Myers. It's Jason Voorhees. Like it's that simple. And that, but and, but after Halloween Kills, I'm like, that's a problem. But like, that's not even his biggest problem in the second one. Right. Like, not to get into it, but like, holy mackerel. Anyway, um, and I like David Gordon Green in almost all other aspects. I like a lot of his movies and I don't want to just sort of like shit on David Gordon Green, but like, yeah, you can, this is not the moment to, to uh, imagine that David Gordon Green would have uh, done anything you wanted to see with this. I mean, I will say like you say to me, David Gordon Green remaking Suspiria and you say David Gordon Green remaking Halloween. And I imagine two very different types of horror movies, right? Because sure. you, Suspiria already is a somewhat like esoteric horror movie. It probably would have, you know, he, he wouldn't have done these like wide sweeping, you know, populist choices that are stupid. Well, um, what's interesting about one of the big failures of Halloween Kills is the way that he decides that this isn't going to be necessarily even a movie about Laurie Strode or even about Michael Myers, but about the town of Haddonfield and what, and, and, you know, the trauma, God, not to bring up trauma, um, that, trauma. that exists within a community that's been terrorized by a serial killer. And like, and all of that is like, as I kept saying, like, I guess that's an intriguing idea if you carry it off well, but it's carried off abhorrently. And, but weirdly enough, Suspiria also is kind of doing that, I think, more elegantly, which is it's placing this horror story within the context of, in this case, I mean, a city in West Berlin, but in really a country that has been sort of through this generational uh, trauma and Mm -hmm. is, you know, dealing with it. Now it's handled metaphorically and, uh, you know, delicately and in Halloween kills it's very much not uh, it's I mean I've seen I've seen responses from people that think that it is not handled so delicately and it is a little ham-fisted in Suspiria that like right but even know, the dance academy is right. literally right next to the Berlin Wall right you know <laughs> yeah no I yes I guess what I'm saying is comparatively even the people who thought that Suspiria was heavy-handed in comparison to something like Halloween kills it is positively whisper thin, right? You know what I mean? It's it's whisper delicate. Um, it certainly doesn't have Anthony Michael Hall traipsing through the whole thing, stomping around, talking about how evil dies tonight. Anyway, I don't want to talk about Halloween Kills anymore. <laughs> I'm done. Um, let's talk about... What should we talk about first? I guess Luca Guadagnino, right? We sort of started yeah. to talk about this a little bit. He's sort of the 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 alpha and the omega of the Oscar buzz for this movie. He said he was already in pre-production for Suspiria while he was making Call Me By Your Name. Like he shot Call Me By Your Name in the spring of 2016 and then shot Suspiria in the fall of 2016. Like both of these movies. There were two basically shooting blocks for Suspiria. A chunk prior to the Sundance premiere of Call Me By Your Name and after. So it's like when most people were seeing Call Me By Your Name in the fall right. festival circuit and then, you know, in the fall and then, you know, as the movie expanded six months later. Right. Um, Suspiria was already done. It was wrapped. He was working yeah. on post-production for it. It's like, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a mindfuck to imagine that, to imagine that his 
mind could be in both of those places at the same time, right? In this very sort of like... Creating two incredibly different movies. Right. This very like romantic Italian. And like the, the, the Italy of Call Me By Your Name also sort of sets itself within a political, sort of like a political moment a lot more, it's a lot more vaguely there. It's a lot more. It's like if Todd Haynes had overlapping production schedules for safe and far from heaven. It's like, (laughs) it couldn't be more like differently uh, observed and intended movies, right? Right. Well, and even that though, we're like, (laughs) at least safe and far from heaven exist in the same country and are both featuring female protagonists. Whereas just like, even that it's like Suspiria and Call Me By Your Name are just so incredibly divergent. And um, so that's, it's a, you know, cool little footnote, but like he was a director who I think came onto most people's radars with the movie uh, I Am Love. Was that his debut or was that just the first thing that I don't people... believe it's his feature debut. I just think it's the one that we stateside have yeah. access to. That is a um, movie about um, Tilda Swinton masturbating in a garden and um, <laughs> other things, I think, happen. It's a um, movie that I hated when I first saw it, but um, it got a really I great reception. it again and I like a lot more. I haven't seen it a second time. It got a really, really strong reception. People really, really loved it. And I watched it and I sort of felt underwhelmed by it. I Tilda you know, learns Italian in a Russian dialect. Yes, there was a lot of like dialect acrobatics that she did. I think she's wonderful. It got a costume nomination from the Oscars and like well-deserved there. Um, but it made me intrigued, at least, when he comes around with his next movie, which is a bigger splash which is um it's not a vulgar movie but it's like a i'm trying to think of like how i would capture the tone. Uh, salacious i think is a fair word for it and yeah. it's intentional too because like it's a i don't want to say like the ultimate purpose of its like salaciousness and like the appeal of like sex and um you know, sexuality and wealth and affluence. The It's very intentional how it uses it towards the audience to make, I would say, a grander message about how, you know, those things are diverting tactics for more toxic things in our culture. Um, and I won't, I don't want to go into that deeper because I want people to discover it because I think that's a movie that reveals its ultimate themes in like the last 10 minutes of the movie. In many ways, a bigger splash is sort of the, island vacation karaoke bar version of uh we saw you from across the bar and we really like your vibe like that's (laughs) that's kind of what you're getting with a bigger splash with you know it's a movie about hot people i love movies about hot it's it's a movie about hot people that is 100 percent absolutely accurate that features ray fines um, doing a mick jagger kind of impersonation uh matthias schoenartz is wildly hot and that's not even getting into the tilda and dakota johnson of it all this was this was my big dakota johnson revelation movie i know other people she's incredible she's incredible in that movie and that came after right after the first 50 shades i believe she had filmed the first 50 shades but it had not been released yet oh Uh, at least when it premiered on the festival circuit because that movie right like it 
it premiered at Venice and then didn't release stateside until yeah I definitely like didn't Memorial see it Day the next year yeah I had definitely seen Fifty Shades because Fifty Shades released in February of uh, it was Valentine's Day right that was the whole gag of it it was uh, yes Valentine's Day Dakota's 2015. good in those movies she is I I mean I thought so even from you know. The I only saw the first one, so I can only speak to the first one. But she's certainly at least better than what the initial reputation of that movie. I think that movie kind of went through ups and downs of sort of critical appreciation and backlash and backlash to the backlash and all this sort of stuff. Um, I, well, it started sort of at the it started with backlash, and then the backlash to the backlash was the second stage of it. But anyway, yes, I think she's good in that movie. Certainly better than you would be. Uh, given to believe. So I saw that in February and then I didn't see a bigger splash until, yeah, like you said, like May or June or whatever of 2015. So then it was, that was the movie where I was like, and I had already had an awareness of Dakota Johnson because she was in this TV show on Fox that was very short lived called Ben and Kate that I really loved. Um, that was, uh, 2012, 2013, something like that. It was one of those, like, I think it lasted like a season on Fox. And it was this, like, brother-sister... Okay, this is the weirdness of... You look back at Ben and Kate now, and it's like... If this was pitched as a television show now, you would lock up executives in jail. It's uh, Dakota (laughs) Johnson and Nat Faxon play brother and sister, who are like... She's a single mom. He's sort of a fuck-up. They grew up... Either, like, it's one of those things, like, uh, you can count on me situations where, like, their parents died when they were younger or, like, whatever. Like, they were all they each other had. And now they're, like, he's moved in to help her raise the daughter. And Lucy Punch plays the, like, local bartendress slash best friend. You can place a movie or a TV show at a very particular, like, four-year period in time by just invoking the name Lucy Punch. Lucy Punch was part of... There was this, she was on a TV show called uh, The Class that was about this like class reunion. And it was one of those things. I want to look up the, the cast of this show. It was in 2007, right? And it like, again, it was a very similar, only lasted a season. I think it was on CBS, but it's a show that's become sort of legendary for the fact that it was this like incubator of uh, Lucy Punch was on it, but like Jason Ritter, Lizzie Kaplan, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, John Bernthal, uh, Andrea Anders. It was like everybody who was on that show. And it was one of those shows that like critics liked, but nobody watched. And all of a sudden it was gone. It was very an atypical CBS show. So nobody in CBS's demographic watched it or liked it. Um, atypical in that critics liked it and it was on CBS. And so it had this like diaspora of all of these actors sort of moved on and Lucy Punch was one of them. And so I like everything she would do subsequent to that, I would really be interested in. And Ben and Kate was one of those shows. But anyway, so going into Fifty Shades of Grey, I was like, oh, it's the girl from Ben and Kate. I didn't even make the Melanie Griffith, Don Johnson connection until like well after the fact. Like I had no idea watching Ben and Kate that that's who Dakota Johnson was. Um, but yeah, so uh, bigger splash happens, and I like the scales fall from my eyes, and I'm just like, she's amazing. Like she's really, she's maybe my favorite performance in that movie. Mm, I don't know. I, that's tough. Uh, no, Ray Fiennes is Ray Fiennes. Top, yeah. But, um, and Tilda Rules and Matthias Schoenert. We were like, just talking all... about Ray Fiennes, and I don't think we talked enough about a bigger splash because we didn't. like. Uh, you know, we we were talking about it in the context of Grand Budapest, which if that was his Oscar, that would make total like sense and it would be wonderful. But yeah, like, yeah. Ray finds in a bigger splash, you guys. J- just just go watch that movie, listeners. Just go watch it. Just do it. Um, and then so after 
Fifty Shades, I think it was this sort of process of what are what is Hollywood going to trust Dakota Johnson with? And sort of, she's kind of pushing her boundaries a little bit. And uh, A Bigger Splash helped, but also nobody saw that movie. So that was a movie that really was easy to kind of uh, push away. She did this comedy called How to Be Single, which is like her and Rebel Wilson and... Oh, Alison the... Brie. Yes, Alison Brie. I love Alison Brie, but if you cut the Alison Brie parts out of that movie, it is five times better i've never like, seen her it. portions of that movie are like wow bad oh no in what way in that like oh and leslie mann know, is also in it the uh, all of the other characters get to just kind of be in this light fun actually kind of funny uh you know female-led comedy and allison Bree's character is asked to be like pushed to this real extreme of a caricature oh that's that is really off-putting and kills the movie to me it's not it's not the actress's fault but that's too bad um and so i'm just sort of i'm looking through dakota johnson's filmography and it's like a lot of movies where it's like oh that should have been like bad times at the el royale is my all-time like that should have been better movie like it was the ingredients of that movie are really interesting and she's a lot of fun when she's in it but she's not in it that much she's not in it that much she was in this movie that only i have seen which was a hulu horror movie called wounds and it's her and uh army hammer but like yes but like she's barely in that too like it's that's army hammer um she's in the peanut butter falcon a movie that i did not see which is um shia labeouf and I genuinely don't know what that movie is about, so I can't really speak to it. But it's just like a lot of movies where it's just like, but you're like, you're Dakota Johnson. You should maybe be doing like bigger things right. than that. And that you don't. Well, she was in The High Note, which is like, she doesn't was. serve her, but that's a fun movie. That's a fun movie. That's a good movie to have on her credit. And now this year, it's also interesting. She's in The Lost Daughter, the Maggie Gyllenhaal movie, The Lost Daughter, which I have not seen. But like, even in that. It. Even in that movie, it feels like a lot of the buzz is going to Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley more than it's going to her. And like, we won't know until we see it. Like, the supporting actresses, like, I've seen people talk about Dakota Johnson. I've seen people talk about Jesse Buckley, but I've also seen people talking about Dagmara Dominic. (gasps) I love her. I Um, love her. In a way that I'm like, unless, you know, Netflix, you know, picks a lane or picks a favorite like it could just be this morass of supporting actors performances in that movie and no one gets ahead right yeah Um, I'm very excited to see that movie though if anybody out there is listening and has an in on a press screening for The Lost Daughter I want it I want it now I'm I'm, I'm Um, she's also going to be doing a Netflix Jane Austen adaptation of Persuasion so like that could be something for like her star meter, for lack of a better word. The thing that I don't think is going to happen, but I so hope that it does, is uh, this was announced maybe a year or two ago that Elaine May was working on a new film and she was going to star in it. Oh. Um, And it's been radio silence on it since. So I assume that it's not happening. But if it does happen... Uh, trust and believe I will be more excited for that than anything else. <laughs> she also, in this, uh, in that span, I think early, probably off of Fifty Shades of Grey, she hosted Saturday Night Live. And one of, I, I thought she was especially good in that. She hasn't been back on yet, but I'm hoping she'll be back soon. She was in that sketch um, 
that sort of begins to present as one of those like father dropping his daughter off at college and he's being very sort of emotional about it. And she just sort of looks at him and she's just like, dad, it's going to be okay. And then you see like the truck full of ISIS terrorists pull up and she's like, dad, it's just ISIS. And she goes, and she's sort of like, and the it's, it's one of those sketches that only really is basically one line. And it's just this like gut punch when all of a sudden it's just like, she's going away to be with ISIS. But the, she like looks at her dad, it's Taryn, Killam's playing her dad and she sort of like cocks her head to the side and she's like it's just Isis and then she winks at him and I'm like that is acting my friends like that is that is she's performance she is a star I love her I do love her she you know took down Ellen and won uh in basically uh, one sentence. We, okay let's talk let's talk for a second about how she single-handedly took down Ellen like it she was the first domino in the domino yeah. effect of Ellen I mean, maybe the second domino, because it feels like the first domino and a lot of people's takedown is, you know, gay whisper campaigns. Um, well, I was going to say, that's not even a domino. That's just like, if you heard, it wasn't even just like gay people. It was like literally. That's the box of dominoes. If you knew somebody who lived. Placed. Right. If you knew anybody who lived in Los Angeles, and they knew somebody who used to work for Ellen in some capacity that had a story about it just being like a terribly unpleasant place to work. And so that was, yeah, all the dominoes, that's, that's set up all the dominoes. And then Dakota Johnson just like nudged the one very sort of just like playfully and just like what if i did this and all of a sudden it's just like <laughs> just everywhere. that's not true ellen <laughs> that's what it was it's not true ellen plink and then they all go down um <laughs> and then she just like what's the first thing that you unleash in the board game mousetrap that's what that's not it's true. the ball right don't you send the little like ball down the 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 one way maybe or you it, you tip it over in yeah like it's a, out of a cup the it's ball in a starts cup. in a bucket it's in a bucket and right you, you tip the bucket. the bucket that's her she was tipping the bucket over yep that's what yeah. it was um yes okay. so <laughs> Uh, back to uh, Suspiria, though. There's still a whole bunch to talk about. We do, we've we only talked about... This is only our second Tilda Swinton movie that we've ever done. And the first one wow. was Burn After Reading. And there was like 8 billion other things to talk about in that movie. So we didn't really talk about Tilda very much at all, actually. And like... Tilda is having the time of her life with the millennials in this movie. She <laughs> is on fucking one. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's on one, two, and three because she's playing three roles in this movie. Um, it's still the thing about Tilda Swinton is a it it both seems kind of crazy that she won an Oscar, and yet also it's also kind of crazy that that remains Michael Clayton remains her only Oscar nomination. Like both I of think those. It's less things, crazy that it remains her only Oscar nomination. I think we should just be grateful that she won for that movie, which is any. Uh, truly great performance too that i feel like people didn't appreciate just how great she was in that movie until it was like time to vote and that's how she won well up until Um, michael clayton comes along her roles were like this really weird mix of incredibly art house like Derek Jarman, Jim Jarmusch, like really sort of like the kinds of indie movies that don't even like have a chance to bubble up really. Obviously, Orlando had like, you know, big critical uh, uh, support. And um, that's a movie that like sort of stands out in her filmography, obviously. But like nobody knew really who she was. She's in the deep end. And that had like she sort of like approached the best actress conversation that year in Mm -hmm. 01. But like mostly she's in the kinds of you know, she's in movies like Young Adam and Technolust and, um, you know, 
broken flowers and things like that that it's just like no like this is not approaching stephanie daly like these things where it's just like they're so far away i think from... she has two lines in broken flowers right right but she's also but she was also sort of like weirdly like prominent in the trailer and then when she does show up at that stage of her career in studio stuff it's like she's playing the angel gabriel in constantine which by the way that movie rules, rules. and she rules it as gabriel in that movie like she's great and then or she's like the white witch in chronicles of narnia which is this like huge movie and she's playing the like kind of the standout character but in this very kind of like unknowable untouchable way where it's well, just like the did they just find the white witch made that movie yeah. 10 times cooler than it was right but it also feels like they cast that movie by going into Narnia and finding a white witch and sort of like bringing her back <laughs> through the wardrobe. And like that's... Narnia is Tilda Swinton's summer home. <laughs> right. That's where she's she's summering in Narnia. Um, it's lovely there. Um, and then after Michael Clayton, so like Michael Clayton happens, she's great in it. I remember watching Michael Clayton and being like, Michael Clayton's phenomenal. George Clooney is probably going to get an Oscar nomination. But you know who should get an Oscar nomination? It's Tilda Swinton, but it won't ever happen. And then, like, and it does. And she wins, which is, like, the most unlikely thing of all. And it's great. And then after that... And you could probably also credit her win a little bit that... Michael Clayton was this immensely popular movie and the Oscars were starting to do this thing that they very much so do now where it's a wealth spreading thing of, well, Michael Clayton has to win for something where is some flexibility that it can win right. for something and it right. ends up, Tilda ends up being the beneficiary of that. One of my favorite little footnotes about the 2007 Oscars is that Michael Clayton's the only movie that got more than one acting nomination. It got three and everything else, all the other acting nominations were alone on their island and that's a very rare thing for the oscars normally if you know if you've got a movie with one acting nomination you have uh, multiple ones so and that also should be juno and the savages getting multiple i agree um at least in the fact with juno i definitely agree um but also we've talked about before about supporting actress that year about how that one the voting was spread out very wide and there was absolutely yeah. no consensus. Where like Kate Blanchett for I'm Not There won the Golden Globe. Amy Ryan for Gone Baby Gone had won the majority of the critics' prizes. Ruby D for uh, American Gangster won the SAG. And then Saoirse Ronan for Atonement hadn't won anything. Maybe did she maybe win BAFTA? Now I don't no, remember Tilda who won did. BAFTA. Tilda won BAFTA. Okay, so Tilda won BAFTA. Yeah. And then Saoirse Ronan is sort of this, like, floating free radical in here where it's like, she hadn't won anything, but she has that, like, kid appeal where it's like, sometimes the, like, the Anna Paquin will, will you know, survive and will surprise at the Oscars. And so really, it was the closest thing I've ever come to a five-way race going into Oscar day. Like I've ever like I can't think of anything else that was an acting category that felt um, like a true five way race going. Into I mean, that when day. when Christoph Waltz won for Django, I don't think it was a five way race, but it did feel like there. Yeah, that was... is that's a good point. It did re- it, that that also felt like there yeah. was there was yeah, a lot of possibilities. You're not wrong about that. I don't think anybody really thought that like. Well, I guess, but like, you're right, because Alan Arkin was nominated for Argo, and it's like, well, he hasn't really won anything, and he already won, so he had won before, so there's not a lot of momentum, but he's the one who's in the Best Picture frontrunner. And Philip Seymour Hoffman had also, I mean, that was the thing about they had all uh, won before. Philip Seymour Hoffman wasn't really seemingly 
uh, super buzzed for the master, except for that he he was the one with the biggest role, right? Like his yeah. sort of him and and Walt sort of both had the like pseudo lead thing going on. Um, it did feel like it was Waltz or Tommy Lee Jones or Robert De Niro. It was, uh, and Tommy Lee Jones won SAG. Tommy Lee Jones had won SAG, and Robert De Niro was with Silver Linings Playbook, which was nominated in all four acting categories and felt like it had momentum. Yeah, I think you're not wrong about that. That other that being sort of the other closest. I, th- I think this supporting actress race we're talking about though is more so like. Anything could have happened. Anything could have happened. And it, and for me, the best possible outcome happened, and I was so thrilled. And so after that, she has this interesting mix of she's either part of a bigger ensemble and kind of doesn't disappear into the ensemble, but like is sort of a uh, she's down the she's down the call sheet a bit. Burn after reading Benjamin Button. Moonrise Kingdom, movies like that. And those are mixed in with smaller movies where she is the lead, but now because it's Oscar winner Tilda Swinton, they're getting a little bit more attention. So I Am Love is one of those. We Need to Talk About Kevin is definitely one of those. Even Julia, the Eric Zonka movie, Julia. Which she's incredible in. I don't know if I can fully stand i mean like i remember the movie just being a lot but like she is she's so, so good that she's it's so like... good strong enough to have gotten an oscar nomination despite the fact that like she's like all on her own no she one saw the movie right um even stuff like only lovers left alive like that's you know it's another jim jarmusch movie, movie but was. now all of a sudden it's like you know she and tom hiddleston kind of elevated the profile of that movie a little bit and then I think her next phase after that starts with Snowpiercer, where it's like, it almost feels like Tilda being like, I'm a little bored. Like, what could I do now? I'm just going to disappear into the weirdest realms of, like, makeup and role and, like... And she so, got a Critics' Choice nomination for Snowpiercer? She definitely got a, 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 I would say, more than one precursor nomination from some some you know far flung places. Maybe for it was BAFTA or something. She was definitely in the in the race, and then but it's even like oh maybe I'll like be in a Judd Apatow movie and play like Amy Schumer's boss in Trainwreck. She rules in Trainwreck. Maybe I'll play twins in Hail Caesar for the Coens. Like it feels like everything <laughs> she does is like I'm gonna like I'll take this thing on a lark and then I'm gonna like play the most extr- like do the most with it right. Okja feels that way. Um, and definitely Suspiria feels that way, where it's just like, cool, I'll make another movie with you, Luca. It's our third one. Maybe for this one, I'll just like, I'll play three people. Well, I just throw well, it out there. When they asked her about the Lutz Ebersdorf of it, she's like, well, it seemed like a fun thing to do. And it's like, I yeah. think Tilda just likes to have a good time. She sometimes. does. And who can, who could possibly begrudge her that? And she's so funny, by the way. I know you haven't seen the French Dispatch yet, but it's out this weekend. And, She's she's back in a caftan again after Suspiria, she, she where she sure wears is. exclusively caftans as Madame Blanc, which is just like cozy queen. She uh, is wearing the most resplendent creamsicle caftan in uh, in the French Dispatch, and doing um, our friend Rob Watson said on Twitter last night, doing um, uh, Barbara Walters as performed by Sherry O'Terry's accents. <laughs> 
<laughs> which like he's not wrong okay i'm excited he's not wrong she's also in memoria this year which again i haven't seen but like when, that's gotten whenever the hell we get to see that movie probably sometime in 2024 and she's also going to be in uh guillermo del toro's pinocchio because apparently we can't get enough pinocchios and she's playing uh, her character is called as per wikipedia fairy with turquoise hair and like i am sure that she will find a way to do the most with that she's playing well. the demon twink fairy with turquoise <laughs> oh my hair. god go away so um tilda swinton has to be you know hollywood's number one choice to play demon twink I'm sorry. I'm bringing this this I am too. up from two months. Ago. I am too. I don't know. I don't know why you're doing this to me. Um, clearly, Demon Twink will, uh, will. Demon Twink is father Suspiriorum. Oh my god! Bye. Goodbye, sir. Wait. So the, let's talk about Tilda and Suspiria for a second, though. Do you feel like it pays off the fact that she's playing Doctor Klemperer, the fact that she's playing Madame Marcos, in addition to Blanc, because Blanc is the most grounded part of this movie right she feels the most like a regular i mean i guess like mia goth's character too or whatever but blanc's character just feels like and like yeah she's a witch i sort of have to keep reminding myself she's a witch because it's like but she also just seems like she's just this dance instructor who wants to seemingly wants to keep Susie as safe as possible while also ushering her into this kind of dark vessel uh, kind of a place and showing up at her house with chicken wings, sending horrible dreams to her uh, at night all of a sudden. Um, No, I mean, okay. So I think it equally appears like a stunt because it's, it's a lot, but also there are, there are some interesting ideas that I don't think the movie fully develops of like uh, this reverberation of like your spirit or your person, uh, you know, your identity can, you know, be reflected throughout generations. It can be reflected in your enemy. Like Mm. it very much literally is by, Tilda Swinton, you know, playing Marcos and Blanc. Um, this I, this kind of paranoia that Guadagnino is playing with in this time period, um, I think it's interesting. I just don't think it fully develops it, though that, to me, is the intention. Yeah. I think it's... I think the stuntiness of the Dr. Klemperer stuff makes... It almost... I think I'm almost happy that it's a two and a half hour movie because it takes me a good while to get beyond the stuntiness of the fact that that's Tilda Swinton in there to really sort of settle into that character and understand the sort of pathos of what that guy's going through. And the fact Mm -hmm. that, you know, the story of his wife and how he had, uh, he wasn't able to provide her with her papers. And that's why she was taken by the Nazis and had no idea what happened to her. And uh, it's a very sad story sort of at the, on the margins of this witch's story that's going on. Well, and having Tilda play these three very different roles that are engaging with, you know, the German history of Mm. German recent history. Um, of it all in very different ways and having a very different active role in it kind of ties those experiences together in a way that's maybe subconscious for the audience. Yeah. That's not a bad way of putting it at all. 
Um, I think that's true. I also feel like, I think by the time Mia Goth sort of enters Dr. Klemperer's story, I think I'm, I'm, I'm locked in with that. I'm settled in. I feel like it's good. She's also quite good in this movie. Mia Can Goth. we talk about how Mia Goth rules? Yeah, I? let's. She started as a model, has been working with, you know, filmmakers such as Claire Denis and High Life. Luca Guadagnino here, and she's great I in Emma. Did you see one her of our in most, Emma? She's great in Emma. Loved her. She's in Emma. so good yeah. doing just this whole other mode, and I think you know shows that she can do something that's a little bit more you know mainstream minded or for you know wider audiences. Mia Goth is a really really exciting young actor. The way they use her character in Suspiria, I really like. It's first, I think. We didn't haven't really talked about sort of the look of this movie beyond the um, the sort of the political sort of illusions at the margins of what's going on, but like just the the actual look of this movie. I think this movie caught a lot of flack for not being colorful because Argento's version. That's one of the first things you think about is just right. the sort of like the high contrast technicolor. You know, the reds and magentas and oranges and sort of these like unreal colors that are accompanying all of these sort of horrific goings on. That's sort of. And if you look at it on a superficial level and you are being reactionary to the basically the color palette of this movie, it makes sense that some people would maybe respond to it like it's trying to be the opposite of what Dario Argento is doing. Right. A lot of people were like, oh, it's colorless. It's beige. I saw a lot of that in reviews. People say talking about how it's beige. And like, I don't think that's what this movie is at all. I think it's not. I feel like it's a more probably accurate depiction of, you know, fashion and architecture of the setting that it's in. You well, know, it's a very specific time and place. It certainly isn't a. I I don't it certainly isn't that the choice was to make this movie devoid of color. Like this movie has an incredibly interesting visual style. I think about things like it first of all it feels like the sun has never shown shined rather <laughs> in this city ever. But also just like so much of this movie happens in like rooms without windows, right? That you talk about like that mirrored room where Olga has her bones broken, which like put a pin in that cuz we still have to talk about that scene. Um but like that mirrored room, which is just like this glass box that is like reflecting upon itself, but it's reflecting no natural light, right? So it's just like it's it's um, closed in upon itself. Like the, the the studio itself, even when there are windows to the outside, it's rainy and gray outside. So like there is no there is no light coming in here. And also the actual film style of it felt very intentionally. 70s, right? I don't know enough about things like film stock or or lenses or or whatever to explain how they managed to make this look like a 70s movie, but there were times I was watching Like a movie it, shot with modern cameras but 50 years ago. Sort of. Yeah, where it's just like it's this um I guess kind of grainy um the drabness of it felt very much like I was watching a movie that was like when I watched like um, the brood, when I watched Cronenberg's the brood recently, sort of right. like that quality of just like, it's, uh, it's less sharp. It's less slick. It feels very much like you're in these sort of very drab 
German <laughs> environs in here. <laughs> and a lot of those scenes I was watching, it, I was just like, this really is kind of indistinguishable from a movie that would have been made in the late 1970s. And so I think the style is very much an active choice in this. It's just not magenta, glowy, you know, Argento stuff. And again, I don't think this movie gets very far by trying to ape that style anyway. So the fact that it went for its own thing, I think ultimately is a good thing. And I think Mia Goth's character, that's why that's the tangent that I went with was Mia Goth. The fact that Mia Goth's character is, she's not the lead. She's not, you know, she's not Dakota Johnson. She's not Tilda Swinton. But the fact that she becomes the sort of POV of the movie also feels very 70s horror to me, where all of a sudden it's just like, for no seemingly no reason at all, we are following the secondary character. And ultimately, we're following the secondary character because the primary character turns out to be, uh, you know, the witch all along. We couldn't follow Susie because if we did, you know, we're not following the story of, you know, the the girl who's trying to figure it out. And so there's a little bit of you're sort of set off your balance a little bit by the fact that, like, all of a sudden, it's it's Sarah's story, right? It's It's Mia Goth's story. And... That, to me, also felt, again, very sort of like late 70s horror. Yeah. Do we want to talk about Tom York and the score and the music? Oh, boy. Let's do it. Let's, you know, I I need to pull this Band-Aid off. Yeah. I feel like I've maybe said it in older episodes. I'm, I'm just not cool. I don't go for Radiohead. I do love Tom York's film scores, but, like... Uh, whenever yeah, he you know, not, opens his mouth, it sounds like whales dying to me. I feel like if I had gotten into Radiohead at a younger portion in my life and sort of like evolved with them, I would be probably all in on them. And I don't begrudge anybody who's super into Radiohead. It seems like a perfectly valid no, thing no, to be no, super no, into. No. I feel like I'm the one who's not smart enough. I miss the boat. I, like I, I don't even think it's a matter of like not smart. I genuinely feel like it's like I, I missed the boat early. And because I missed the boat, I just like there's now too much too much ocean to span between me and where the boat is now. And like, that's fine. Um, I do cert- like there are certain older, especially older, like certain Radiohead songs that like I was able to sort of form a context to outside of just sort of sitting and listening to albums um, where stuff like creep and, um, uh, and idiotech and uh, fake plastic trees has sort of like bled into the culture, some other place. And so I've experienced those songs elsewhere and like i was like yeah they're really great stuff you know there's really good musicians nothing but respect for uh for tom york and johnny greenwood with their film work i don't think the tom york stuff works as well as it needs to in suspiria for being as jarring as it is i think to be this jarring you really has to like work like gangbusters and i don't think it does well the the original song which it plays over the opening credits, yeah. which like feels like a prologue that is so easy to just like yank out of this overlong movie. Um, yeah, where you see Susie's life in you know Ohio. I'm sure, is she I'm not sure Men- Mennonite. I can't remember whether it's that her family was Mennonite and then became Amish, or was Amish and then became Mennonite. There was there's there's one point where she talks about how one faction wasn't conservative enough for her. Uh, for her family's liking, right. so they moved to the other. Whatever it was, it was like, we're going to be the more extremely religious one. It's like, cool. Um, but the thing I think about this movie in relation to Oscar is I actually think the song is the closest that it got yeah. to Oscar. I it made the short didn't list, didn't have right? time to look it up, but I'm pretty sure 
the song made the Bake Off list, but yeah. the score did not, which, like, it should be the other way around. It should because, be. Because, like, the Volk sequence, which we also haven't talked about yet, that score is incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the score is great. The songs really take me out. The songs seem too modern. Like, the, the movie has taken such pains to place itself within this specific time and place, and all of a sudden, I'm listening to a Radiohead song. And it's just like, it seems... And because Radiohead is so associated with this kind of hipness, I'm like, why all of a sudden are we trying to be this hip in this movie? I don't think it works. And it's also... it's There's a song that plays at, during the bloodbath scene at the end. I'm like, this also yeah. doesn't work for me. It just seems too... And tonally, it's very strange. Um, it's too showy. It's too clever. It's too, you know, it's too much for me. Yeah. But but you're right about the score, and you're right about the dancing scenes and the way that the, the music sort of... Uh, Plays the dancing scenes in this movie are really, really well done. Um, this was around the time that, like, me and fellow weirdos were like, we need to bring back special achievement Oscars or we need to have a choreography Oscar yes. because there were so many examples of like dancing in movies that were interesting that were like very integral to the movie. Um, and Suspiria would have been, you know. A great nominee or win do for you think, a potential choreography category. Do you think there's a possible way to do a choreography category at the Oscars that would encompass both dance choreography and fight cate- choreography? Or are those two separate things that you couldn't that you couldn't square within one category? Hmm. I mean, they're two very, very separate things, and I can't imagine what like that branch of the academy that right. would be voting on it would look like. Right. But like the problem with a choreography Oscar is that, you know, you may not have enough. Well that's why I thought you, you could if you add like, if you add fight ca- choreography, you would at least have enough, you know, movies to have an award right. every year. That's, right? a, that's an interesting idea though. I mean you probably would have enough movies in a year to do a fight category. Um I just wonder choreography category. Right. But I just wonder if you, you, you know, you could do a category where you have like, you know, four punchy, punchy movies and then like, you know, uh, whatever. (laughs) Volk, which is essentially punch choreography. Right. Or like whatever, step up uh, 3D and then, uh, and then. We could have had Oscar nominee step up to the streets. Listen, we should have had Oscar nominee. Well deserved. Very well deserved. Um, The best scene of the movie, I would wager, and I'm, I'm wondering if you agree, is the scene where Dakota Johnson uh, dances poor Olga to a pile of broken bones. This is also the scene that was the first footage scene of the movie because it's cinema. I didn't realize which, this, like, that scene screened before the movie released. I don't like that decision. Oh, yes. Okay, so CinemaCon this year. CinemaCon is... I don't feel like we've ever talked about CinemaCon. No. We should have for Cats because they showed uh, they uh, had Jennifer Hudson singing uh, Memory at CinemaCon for right, Cats. Right, right. CinemaCon this year almost didn't happen because of COVID, and it takes place in Vegas every year. So, Oh, right. You know, make that what you will. But CinemaCon is basically studios uh, presenting their year's worth of content for... Uh, theater exhibitors, right? And it's like, know, did, what, uh, wasn't there a thing called Show West at one point that felt like that too? I, I think so yeah. too. Yeah. Um, and Cine- what they did, first of all, they presented the Suspiria footage during a luncheon, <laughs> so everyone's having lunch, right? While they show this scene where this woman is 
like oh i hope uh, it was like oxtail and marrow or something yeah yeah <laughs> right the, the 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 very iconic scene where you know uh dakota johnson is de- uh dancing the lead of volk for the first time she studied it watched it a hundred times on videos from the library but it's uh, like her first it's her first rehearsal like she just joined yes. the group and she's like i could do this i watched it on she's it's the equivalent of some somebody being like yeah i watched youtube like i can i get it like that's and this other character who has uh basically excommunicated herself from the dance academy has been mystically lured into this entirely mirrored dance hall mm-hmm. Where as Dakota Johnson is doing these very aggressive movements, it's flinging her across the room. It's breaking her bones. It's bending her backwards and like contorting her body into this. Breaking uh, her bones in the most visceral, like the Foley work in there is just. Suspiria should be a sound nominee for this. One million percent. Like again, if the, if the Academy would just watch so I just watch all the movies. You know what I mean? And like, well, but also think outside of the box. Think outside the box. You know, it's such like, an effective scene. Like, if you are not, if your body is also not sort of like moving and gnarled and like trying to like escape, you know, the skin that you're in during this scene. It's also a bloodless scene. It's the most yes. grotesque horror scene that I can think of of recent years, off the top of my head, except for maybe something in like Raw. Um, but it's bloodless. Like, and also she pukes and pees, but there's no like gore. And it's also like it's horrifying, but it's also sad because you're just like I just so like she can't escape, and she's like she's like all, she's all alone in this room, and her body is just sort of violently doubling back on itself. And like her, the very first thing you see of it, beyond she, she gets flung around a little bit, but the first sort of bone crunching moment is her jaw gets like knocked to the side of her face yeah and it's just so and you see it and it's right in front of your face and it's so viscerally horrifying it's just it's horror to its most pure degree and that is by far like the endings the ending bloodbath is what it is right there's a lot of exploding right. heads and and blood spraying everywhere and whatever and that is what Mia it is goth being disemboweled but by far the most horrifying moment of this movie is this and again it's in this all mirrored room where it's like it's not there are no shadows in this room there's no darkness it is you know it's interior light again there's no sunshine in this movie but it's just like it's all fully lit and like you just pull, they pull off the scene too with very very little CGI because right. this actress is also a contortionist and they use prosthetics and yeah you know yeah it is so it feels it, it, it's, it's a, a wonder. horrifying scene that's remarkably tangible at the same time it's a wonder. but like yeah <laughs> you know we as an audience I think were prepared for it because the CinemaCon audience like it was making headlines because. There's, like, people losing their lunch watching this scene. Um, and, they had, and of course, it had never been seen by any kind of audience whatsoever. Um, always tickles me pink. Whoever's idea it was to play it during lunch knew exactly yeah. what they were doing. Again, I just want it to have been, like, chicken wings or something like that. just something where like it's just like discarding a pile of bones into like a a bowl or something in the center of the in the center of the table something like that 
what we should say this movie did most uh, the movie's like biggest award success was actually at indie spirits which seems yeah wild but yes it had a 20 million dollar budget which i think is their budget cap in recent years but and it's always it famously sort of the budget cap is always famously fungible anyway right like if you right. if you ask them nicely they'll let you slide Exactly. But it also wins a prize we've never talked about before, the Robert Altman Prize, which Indie Spirit like yes. gives to a movie basically for its director and ensemble that like the idea is the prize is for a group collaborative effort. It's named after Robert Altman. Right. Um, so through the years, um, it was it was named Robert Altman. It's uh, Wikipedia is annoying because it only lists from 2007 on, which is when it was named after Robert Altman. Um, but, like, movies that have won, uh, I'm Not There, Synecdoche, New York, um, A Serious Man, Please Give won the one year, which is, like, fantastic. Rad. Like, what a well-chosen... Great call. Um, margin The idea, call. though, is that they aren't supposed... Like, you get that prize and you're not going to be eligible elsewhere. And, yes. of course, they have fudged that just like they fudged yes. the rest of the rules yes uh last but night like it best was picture winners spotlight and moonlight i think mostly it's a way for them to get around the acting categories whereas like it's it's if you get right. the the altman prize you're not going to be nominated in other acting categories and oftentimes that frees them up then to nominate more sort of off the path so like when they nominated marriage story they can you know that frees up a bunch of slots in a lot of categories because you don't have Driver and Dern and and Scarlett Johansson. Um, Suspiria wasn't didn't really seem like it was a threat to have shown up in the individual acting categories, which makes this a little bit of a curious case. And also, a lot of times their ensemble prize there will be sort of a hook to it, right? If it's not well, too... there's a hook to this one. Well, there's a lot of hooks to this one. But, like, you talk about, like, Moonlight, the fact that, like, that's how they were able to nominate all three actors who played Chiron, right? Because it's a, it's an, it's an ensemble prize. And, or something like Spotlight, where there's, like, eight bajillion supporting actors. And it's just like, well, we'll nominate all of them. Whereas Suspiria, it felt like, I guess, the hook of it is... You know, we're getting Tilda Swinton for all of these performances. We're getting, like, Jessica Harper, who was in the original Suspiria, who plays Dr. Klemperer's wife, who sort of mystically shows up in this movie. And then all of these dancers, right? Who, I think it's a sort of a back way, a backwards way of honoring, like, the coven, right? All of these, like... All of who are giving really specific but very small performances that, like, to me this prize is really cool to honor yes. those performers who like probably wouldn't like no other group would think to of this movie for an ensemble prize. Um, I think her name is Angela Winkler who plays Miss um, Tanner, who is sort of the, the right hand of Madame Blanc through most of this. She's the one who's at Madame Marcos's side during the, uh, during the finale, she's the one. And we find out, interestingly, that she is spared because she voted for Blanc uh, over over Marcos. But she's really fantastic in this movie. And, um, oh, just, I, I can't think of, uh, of everybody's name who I want to point out in this ensemble of witches. But, like, it's a really, like, it's, it's cool that they all got their piece of that prize. I thought. Yeah. So what, what other, there's so many... 
other scenes in this movie that I feel like we need to at least just like briefly talk about because there's so much movie. I I kind of love the scene where Susie peeks in on the witches, like yes, freezing these men, these and, cops like, who come looking for Patricia for for Claire Grace. Uh, yeah, and they like. Pl- get the hook out and start playing with his penis and laughing. They're laughing then, at like, him. I know. Never commented again. Like Susie just leaves like, well, that was fucking weird. Well, like, but that's, <laughs> I think the first indication that like, why is Susie not more like weirded out by these, like this witchcraft sort of happening in front of her. And she never tells she's with like Mia goth is in that room with her and she doesn't watch it, but like, she doesn't, tell me a goth that like this really unsettling and disturbing thing is happening. So you sort of get, there's, you know, this suspicion that sort of falls on Susie a little bit early on, or at least when you watch it back again, you're just like, ah, I see, I see what's going on there. What did you make of these sort of kaleidoscopic dreams that Susie is given by Marcos that sort of, or by Blanc rather, um, to sort of prep her for this transformation that, also mix in with her own memories. I don't think the plot aspects of how Susie ends up being revealed as Mother Suspiriorum matter too much, but I I was sort of curious as to whether do you feel like she was always Mother Suspiriorum back in Ohio, or did these sort of dreams kind of open her up as a vessel for Mother Suspiriorum to like sneak her way in, or does that I? Sure, it doesn't I feel matter like because much, when she talks about her life in Ohio and we see those flashbacks to where she's like looking at the map and it like all is centered around Berlin. Drawing all me, these the lines su- to Berlin, yeah. Yeah, the suggestion is like there has always been something that she doesn't understand that compels her to this dance academy Yeah, that like is ultimately revealed to her, but have always been there since she was a child. So to me, the idea is that she has always been the Mother Suspiriorum. I think that's right. And it's more right. about a self-actualization of discovering the thing that you always intrinsic, intrinsically have been. Yes. And so these dreams that she has are like these quick-cut things to sort of horrifying imagery in one way or another. Some of them are flash forwards. Some of them are flashbacks. Some of them are just sort of like this like Ken Russell style. Yeah, just like flashes of like bizarreness. And part of it, I was like, okay, this is like effectively unsettling. Part of it, I felt like it's a little showy on Lucas' part to just be like, look at all this like spooky shit, like try and figure it out. <laughs> and ultimately it, there's no, there is, it's not a puzzle. It's not a puzzle meant to be figured out. And sometimes I feel like I, sometimes I do get a little bit annoyed with directors who put in things in their movie that clearly feel like puzzles to be figured out. And then after the movie be like, no, you weren't meant to try and figure it out. And it's just like, motherfucker, you're the one who put it there. (laughs) Like I am just a human being with rational impulses whose brain is wired towards the idea of taking random imagery and finding patterns in there. And like, that is the way the human brain is oriented. So don't blame me for, uh, 
for wanting to figure it out. Ultimately, I'm fine with it. But there's a little bit in me that is like, sometimes I feel like directors now take this little like get out of jail free card of like, you weren't supposed to know all the answers. And it's like, oh, shut up. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I'm fine with ambiguity, too. But also shut up like a little bit. I love. I don't necessarily think that he's trying to put in a puzzle to be solved in those sequences. I feel like it's more. But I also feel like he walks out of that movie being like, yeah, you're not supposed to care you're not supposed to know what all those things are right like that's right i mean maybe maybe not i get the sense that he knows exactly what everything means sure yes and we just have to catch up like i think it's there to be solved but like i do still feel a little stupid when i watch this movie (laughs) um yeah um mostly i mean i feel like i've i find myself a lot of times lately just being like the movie's just a vibe and like so i do kind of feel that way and maybe that's like me being a little bit lazy in my assessments of things but um i think a lot of suspiria is a vibe <laughs> like it just sort of is right it's just you know you're on a, you're on a little bit of a ride and i mostly enjoyed it it is not a perfect movie but it's two and a half hours well spent as far as i'm concerned yeah, it's a movie that I like wrestling with for those two and a half hours. Yes, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I would also say if we want to talk about like kind of the awards failure of it, this is a rough year for Amazon. Amazon, I feel like, is well, like, no shade to Amazon, but like historically, both for television and for movies, they drop the ball on a lot of things and are not the greatest at campaigning. And yet. This year, 2018, was one of their more, like, degree of difficulty in getting that director nomination for Cold War is pretty significant. And they got it. And they basically turned it into a thing where people are, like, looking for the non-English language film that's going to be nominated for Best Director. Right, right. And so... But they also, I mean, maybe... Maybe this is me backtracking a little bit, but they also campaigned that well because everything else kind of fell apart because they also had in this year, they had Life Itself. Yes. Famous disaster. Noise. Yeah. Um, Beautiful Boy, which was not well received, but like Timmy Chalamet, like stuck around for... Probably finished you know, sixth, I would say. Probably. Probably. Yeah. They had Peterloo and ended up pushing it off, which like... And then did nothing with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that movie's way better than, you know, it I, was received. Yeah, I'm trying to envision what they would have how they would have needed to campaign that movie because that movie is not Oscar. It needed better reviews out of the festivals. Yeah, that's probably true. But I still feel like yes, I think that's true. I think it's tough to tell whether they campaigned Beautiful Boy poorly or they got Beautiful Boy closer than it had any right to get. To a nomination uh, when it comes right. to Xiaomi. So, like, six of one half doesn't have another, right? Life itself. It's not a performance I love, so I was fine. Right. I like it better it than you. We've talked about yeah. this before. Um, and, like, I really don't like the movie. Um, and I think it's probably people not liking the movie is yeah. the reason that kept him out. But credit to them. And Cold War is a movie. I feel like we saw, saw Cold War together as well at TIFF. And we I, didn't. Because I, I saw that movie pretty late. And I oh, was did you? Underwhelmed by I it. was underwhelmed by it, too. And the, But the fact that they were able to... Like, we were in the minority of that. Most people really, really liked yeah. it. And the fact that yeah. they 
grasped that early and like rode that horse and like they really campaigned that movie they campaigned that movie hard and there was a lot of that season where i was like what are they doing pushing cold war and part of it was because i wasn't a huge fan of it so i was like why are you wasting our time bringing up cold war again like who cares turned out to be the movie they They, had the best chance with. they knew more than i did they were smart and i was dumb and they got not only uh, best foreign language uh, nomination out of it, but a uh, best director nomination. Um, what won that year? Was that the year that a Fantastic Woman won foreign language? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, yes. Which is also some great campaigning because to beat the film that has a best director nomination um, in your category is pretty good. Like that's pretty well done. But anyway, good on. Yeah, like weird year for Amazon, but ultimately one of their better awards moments happened in that year with Cold War. So they've got a lot on deck this year. We'll yeah. see if uh, any of it sticks. So this year, let's let's uh, remind the listeners because they might not know uh, what we're talking about. Being the Ricardos, which, which is getting rushed, which. That alone keeps me skeptical, aside from all the things that people are skeptical about that movie. Okay, can we talk about the reception for that trailer? Sure. People acted like it was, like, the worst thing they'd ever seen in their entire life. I didn't When think I think the correct response to that trailer would have been, like, this is a teaser for a trailer. It's, like, right. a minute long. But I think people are so ready to pounce on that movie that I'm just, like, at least wait to, like, see it at least like if you're going to decide that you're gonna like make this your punching bag for this year at least fucking see it but like what was what was their daughters because they had this whole thing of uh, desi and lucy's uh daughter commenting on the movie lucy arnaz she said something to the effect of it doesn't matter that she's not trying to look or sound like her which to me says like that might be not a terrible idea to do for a movie who has such a for a for a figure in hollywood history that has such a distinct and iconic look and sound well ultimately i that seemed clear to me when they cast nicole kidman like they're not going for impersonation well and lucy outside of performing carried herself very differently sounded very differently right um so like I, I I could be very much on board with that, but then why make this big deal out of hiding Nicole Kidman? It doesn't I, make any sense to me. Except for the fact that my see my reasoning there is they understand how social media works now, and that yeah. if you put her face there, like look at how much that small little glimpse of her doing the doing the uh, grape stomping has gone and that one has made the route from filming right has right and i think the paparazzi stuff and the reaction to that i think they know that the second her face is there outside of context it's going to it's going to be a real danger of this like wave of negative buzz and ultimately there's nothing you can do about it ultimately you got to have a trailer and you're going to have to show her sometime also how quickly can they put all this shit together they yeah. were filming this in march but like, yes but i think in trying to get ahead of that you know social media reaction they created 
another social media reaction, right? So <laughs> now all of a sudden, because social media is so smart, now everybody is hip to the idea of, oh, they're hiding her. Why are they hiding her? It must be bad, blah, 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 blah. Oh, she sounds so weird. Oh, her accent. Oh, whatever. It's just like double birds, y'all. Like, fuck off. Like, I don't want to be I like... I understand, like, people who really love, uh, you know, the legacy of I Love Lucy. That's not who the these people Ball are. Show, like... Yeah, I saw some people who do it that they were not into. I think the uh, the it, the twenty level people who align with that are probably not going to be on board for the movie. Period. The twenty but... something cigarette emojis I saw coming for this movie were not people who were coming at it because they were in love with Lucille Ball's legacy. That was just like I, I don't know. Not to be like, don't come for Nicole Kidman unless she sends for you, but don't come for Nicole Kidman unless she sends for you. Just like <laughs> fuck off. I don't know. <laughs> I Amazon, don't know. Though, also this year will have. Um, did I say the tender bar? You didn't, but I'm very interested to see what kind of a campaign. Why the hell would they allow reviews of that movie to be out there and show it to critics and press two months before it's supposed to come out for it to only get these widely negative reviews? Is that what happens? Well, we shouldn't trust George Clooney as a director anymore. Period. <laughs> but like. Even Ben Affleck is getting better notices for The Last Duel than he is for this movie. All of a sudden, Ben Affleck's one of the more interesting aspects of this award season. And, like, remember how annoyed we were last year that they tried to, like, make Ben Affleck in the basketball movie happen? And we were just, that like... movie that we both hated. Right. And it was super annoying. And I remember just being like, stop. This is not a thing. Stop trying to make this a thing. And now I, like... And you know I still don't like Ben Affleck, but like begrudgingly I must admit that he much he like is incredible in the much last like duel. everything, much like everything in the last duel, I'm just like, yes, fine, I really liked it. Like, shut up. So he's not in it that much, no. but I think the performance that he gives in the way that he gives it is an integral piece to the puzzle Plus, of that movie. He is just such an a like his position as a celebrity is so unique that there is absolutely no way of predicting in either direction what is going to happen with an Oscar campaign for him. We talked, you and I were talking earlier this week how unusual it is, the fact that this is a guy with two Oscars, none of which are in the two fields you would most associate him with, which are acting and directing. Like, he has two Oscars, none of them are for acting or directing. Um, And... He's part of this, like, absolute media phenomenon with Jennifer Lopez. And yet, I think people are still unsure to what degree they like him or they ironically like him. Like, I, 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 it's hard to grasp how people feel about Ben Affleck. And that's how it's been for him for the last 15 years of his career. Like, really, truly, he's such an odd one. For somebody who doesn't seem to be doing much. Like, it's not like, you know, he's out there doing the most, but he's making himself available for all of us to sort of project all these things onto him. And, like, it's fascinating. And also, I don't like him. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know where to come at this. I am skeptical about the Amazon Tender Bar movie being a movie that gets him nominated. Um Amazon also has the Asgard for Hottie, a hero. Right. Very excited for Which that. Which feels like has but, existed for like 
five years at this point. Well, like, can feels like it was a million years ago, even though this year's can was later than usual. Yeah. Um, we will see. Maybe that could be the uh, non-English language film that gets a Best Director nomination this year. You we shall know. see. You never know. Um, the Riz Ahmed movie that I hated at TIFF, Encounter, it's kind of a sci-fi. Yeah, thing. that's kind of not going to – I don't think that's going to be that's, a thing. No one's going to watch it, I don't think, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, he's great in the movie movie is bad i agree um, i agree with that they also have the electrical life of louis wayne which i don't think will get very far because uh benedict cumberbatch leads a whole other movie that's getting a lot yes. of attention yes we've talked about movies like that in the oscar race before yeah i think amazon's um, got being the ricardos and that feels like that's the horse it's gonna ride and it's award yeah. season narrative will be will live or die with that one and we'll we'll certainly see how it goes so. The one that I'm very curious if they're going to go there or not, my suspicions say they are not, is Annette. Because <laughs> right. I loved Annette. I really feel like that would be a great Best Score nominee. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, I wouldn't put a whole lot of uh, I wouldn't my stock in it. <laughs> Have you watched Annette? No, it's been waiting there for me. And it's one of those things where it's like, I'm very excited to see it, but I need to have it on a night where I have absolutely no distractions and no whatever. And like, I want to be like in the right space for it. And I just haven't been yet. So, and it's also I long. I mean, I think if you're expecting a heady experience, you're going to come away disappointed. I think. I don't know what don't experience know. I'm expecting, which is I'm excited for. I just know that it's, you know, two hours and 20 minutes of of time I that I really have to, like, really set aside. Listeners should check that movie out. It's wild. It's, I will. It's a, I intend to. Worth your time. All right. We've been at this for a while. Anything else about Suspiria before we move on to the IMDb game? Um, uh, uh, Justin, there is an update on the Eastern block. Uh, Blanc has surged ahead, uh, and has a slight lead. Again, if you are in line, stay in line, uh, for Blanc. The, the, uh, the email vote or the early voting and the, uh, mail-in voting is expected to come in heavily for Marco. So I don't, I, prospects for Blanc don't look good right now. She doesn't, has not amassed enough of a position to withstand the onslaught of uh of early voting and email voting email voting why do i keep saying email voting fake news i don't know um anyway not to make this especially cursed but like who's the gary johnson in the marcos blanc election oh that's the sort of short woman with the curly hair who really seems to relish the idea of everybody wielding the hooks Yes. Like, yeah, she's yes. the spoiler. She's definitely the spoiler. She's not the, like, Jill Stein. Or, no, Jill Stein is the one that uh, Mia Goth comes upon in the basement who doesn't seem to have uh, hands or feet, but is just sort of crawling around. <laughs> that sort of, that creature that we never really got a ton of explanation for. That's right. that's the Jill Stein. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Suspiria. <laughs> Go watch it. Um, <laughs> you can watch it right now on Amazon Prime. That's right. Yeah. All right. All right, Joe. Would you like to explain for our lovely listeners? Um, actually, no. Let's do this uh, ahead of the IMDb game. Okay. Listeners, we've got some news for you. Ba, 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 ba. Uh, something exciting. As you know, we like to end the calendar year with a mailbag episode, and we are once again going to be doing that. We will be taking your questions to do a special episode uh 
just all centered around your questions. So we will accept uh, all of your questions either at our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz, or you can email us at had Oscar buzz at gmail.com. Try to stay away from questions like, when will you do this movie? Or, you know, questions that like, Ask us to name the one movie that represents X or something, because, you know, we're, we're gay people. We contain multitudes. We can't be reduced down to one thing or an opinion on one thing. But send us your questions, anything about previous Oscar years, previous Oscar contenders, the current season, our thoughts on actors or actresses of uh, general variety. Joe, do you have any ideas on, like, fun questions listeners could ask? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we'll get uh, our fair share of a month by the lake questions, but maybe if you only get one question... uh... What if the lake voted for Marcos? (laughs) You have to explode the head of the lake, then. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. But, yes, throughout the month of November, so from November 1st, which is the day that this episode drops, through the end of November, send us in your questions. We're going to be doing that at the end of the year. Also, we are coming up on another... Uh, what 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 is something when it happens every 25 times? Quarter centennial? Yeah. Yes. Essentially. There's some Latin term episodes, for it. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're not smart enough to know the word for it. No. But every 25 episodes, we always do a listener's choice. So guys, also in December, we're going to be doing a listener's choice. So you can submit the episode that you would want us to cover most for our episode 175. Uh once again, our Twitter is had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. You can also email your submission to us at had Oscar buzz at gmail.com. Uh, last time we did one of these like grand open ones, it was widows. It very, very much led the polls, but we still did a poll. Uh, we'll, we'll keep you guys posted on how, uh, the votes are shaking down if it'll be a poll or if we won't need one this time. But, We uh, have both a mailbag coming and a listener's choice. So send in your submissions for questions you want answered and the movie you want covered. Chris, what if the lake in question is Lake Ebersdorf and it is played by uh, Tilda Swinton? (laughs) Lake spelled with an umlaut or something. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's L-E-I with an umlaut K. That is probably not pronounced lake. But we'll we'll go with it. All right. I feel like Tilda would demand a umlaut. All right. Should I tell them how about the IMDb? Tell the people about the IMDb game. I think I will. Every week, give it to us. We end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we remember. Uh, if. <laughs> If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That's it. That is indeed the IMDb game. That's it. Would you like to give or guess first, sir? I'll give first. Alrighty, Humst, do you have for me? Well, we talked about the great Dakota Johnson. We talked about how she got famous for uh, being in a trilogy of movies about uh, love and contract negotiations called uh, the Fifty Shades movies. And her co-star in those was one Mr. Jamie Dornan, 
So, Chris, Jamie Dornan, four known fours, one of them is television. Well, the thing is, I don't think you would give me Jamie Dornan if there were three Fifty Shades movies in there. But I'm going to guess that there's more than one, and I'm going to say Fifty Shades of Grey and Fifty Shades Darker is in there. One strike. Fifty Shades of Grey is there. No Fifty Shades Darker. Wow. Okay. So you have one. I mean, that's surprising. Indeed. Uh, What was he on TV with? It was... Uh, wasn't there one of a mil- uh, Gillian uh, Anderson's million TV shows? Was it that? Do you remember the title? Of course not. <laughs> yes, you're right. It's the TV show he was on with Gillian Anderson where he played a serial killer and she was investigating him. It was called The Fall. Okay. Two more. I'm trying to think of Jamie Dornan things because... He was also on Once Upon a Time. Uh, that was the thing that I had first seen him in. He played the the Huntsman of uh, Snow White and the Huntsman fame, but uh, mm, obviously not there. Yes. The thing about Jamie Dornan is all that I can think of is recent. He was just in the Bee movie. Was it Bees in Wild Mountain Time? I've still not seen Wild Mountain Time. I'm saving it. I'm saving it for like a, a literal rainy day. Like I really want to. Like I'm saving it for this fucking podcast because i'm not watching that twice yes um and then barb and star but like listeners if you want us to watch wild mountain time vote for it in listeners choice it's all say i don't think wild mountain time oh that's the one uh stipulation that we didn't say it has to be uh oh right it can't be a 2020 movie yeah 2019 and earlier right so So you can't can't vote for wild Wild mountain Mountain time listeners for next year's listeners choice remember to vote for (laughs) wild mountain time Well, I mean, unless we're really trying to avoid COVID, the first 2020 movie could be in whenever the Oscar ceremony is. Right. I thought that was our rule. Um, I mean, I guess I'll just get my years and I'll say, was he the one nominated for Wild Mountain Time or was Emily Blunt nominated for Wild Mountain Time or was predicted for it? I'll just say Wild Mountain Time. It is not. And now I want to look up... uh who was the nominations for Wild Mountain Time. She was the one who was buzzed for it, definitely. She didn't end up getting any nominations. It did get nominated by the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards for Best best Grownup Love Story. But uh, we'll get into that in a year or so when we review (laughs) Wild Mountain Time. All right, so two strikes. Your remaining years are 2018 and 2021. Oh, wow. Is 2021... I mean, it could already be Belfast, but I think... That's so soon. Is it Barb and Star? It's Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, my friend. I mean, that's great. We love Barb and Star. We love Barb and Star. That's wild. Get ready for us to be absolutely insufferable stumping for that movie to get a Best Original Song nomination. It's not eligible. It was the last calendar year. It was the last award ceremony. Oh, because of the weird calendar. Frick. Uh-huh. You're right. Well, I'm going to be insufferable anyway. That's my right. I mean, you might be insufferable without this. Hey. Tone. <laughs> I love you. Tone. Okay. Uh, okay, you said 2018 is that Fifty Shades Freed. It is not Fifty Shades Freed. 
It is only one Fifty Shades movie on his whole IMDb, which is why I decided to uh, to bring him to you because I thought that was uh, intriguing. Okay, so his is all pretty fucking recent, but I mean, I guess that makes sense for him, but I don't know what this is going to be. Um, all right, this was a movie. Um, he is his name is on the poster, although his face is not. Um, he is second build on the poster. Um, it's one of those posters where it's three names in the cast and the ones names on either side are listed as Academy Award nominee. And it's poor Jamie Dornan in the middle with nothing above his name, which is, uh, which is kind of too bad. Um, the lead of this movie got a nomination, but it wasn't an Oscar nomination that year. Um, the lead of this movie was Oscar nominated that year. No. The lead of this movie got a nomination somewhere that season, but it wasn't for the Oscar. Oh, okay. For this movie? Yes. Okay. Um, it's, was it BAFTA? No. Was it the Globes? Yes. For um, this movie is the thing. Yes. It also got a song nomination at the Globes. It's a movie we could do for this podcast. Um, the lead. Oh, mm, is that 2018? Uh, what are you thinking? I was thinking, you know, the one that the Globes love, Miss Roz Pike, in the 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 the. Um, I never saw this movie. Uh, she has an eye patch. She's the she's a reporter, right? She no. What's it called? I'm gonna make you remember it. No, it's called uh, it's called a private war. You got it. But uh... he's in that. Yeah, he's second build. That's interesting, isn't it? Though, yeah, a private war. Yeah, so you got it, even though <laughs> two of them you got without uh, remembering the titles. But you know what? Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar has title enough for... Uh, it's the else. power of Trish. That's how I got there. It is the power of Trish. Good job. Alrighty. So for you, I went into the Suspiria history, actually, mm-hmm. of the version that was almost made by David Gordon Green. He attracted several prestige actresses. Who did I choose for you? None other than probably my favorite actress... Miss Isabelle Huppert. We've never done Isabelle Huppert. According our records, we have not. All right. All right. Let's do this. Cracking my knuckles. Let's get into it. Uh, L. Correct. Her Oscar, Her Oscar nomination. nomination. Um, all right. Isabelle. The piano teacher. Piano teacher. Which I've still not seen, but one of these days I will. That's a movie you should watch when you have like, yeah. nothing to bother you, no one at home. Yeah. Uh, you know. Um, this is why I end up watching trash so much, because it's just like, ah, I don't have to, my brain doesn't have to be in peak condition to watch this movie. All right. Uh, all right, Isabel. I'm feeling like. What direction are we going to go with? With Isabel. I mean, you don't have any wrong answers yet. I know. I'm hesitant to say Huckabees because she's probably very far down the cast list in that, even though 
She's great. Greta? No, Shit. not Greta. Please, only homosexuals have seen that movie. Yeah, but there's more of us than you think. Um, and we all use IMDb. Um, you can just insert the clip of her going, I deserve better! Neil Jordan's Greta. Um, one of these days when I win the lottery and buy a, a movie theater to run at a loss for the rest of my life, I'm going to program... Greta will be programmed I'm gonna, around the clock every day. I'm going to program Chloe and Greta as a uh, double feature. You have to you have to watch both. Um, all right. Who directed Chloe? Uh, Adam Agoya. Yes, thank you. All right. Um... I feel like there's one really obvious one that I'm missing at least, right? Uh, you only have one wrong answer. I cannot. Yeah, you cannot. All right, I'm going to guess I Heart Huckabees. I Heart Huckabees is incorrect. Yeah, that's what I figured. All right, what are my years? Your years are 2002 and 2016. 2002 is going to fuck me up. 2016, so is it also um, uh, the Mia Hansen love movie? Um now I'm gonna. Uh, uh, what was that called? Um, <laughs> I'll give it to you since you get you uh, helped me out so much. It's things to come. It things is to come. Things to come. Yes. All right. All right. 2000- I'm one of those psychos. I'm just gonna out myself here, because, and I'm allowed to do that because I uh, I am one of the leading Isabelle Pair stands. Um, I feel like mm-hmm. I would have nominated her for things to come over L. I know that that is like full fighting words. I liked things to come better than I liked L. Um, I get why L was the performance that sort of attracted. Because it's so much the culmination of her career. And like I've Mm. said this before, I've said it again. She is a performer who has had that several times in her career. The piano teacher is definitely also one of them. So it's like, it makes sense that it's L. It feels like it's a culmination of everything that we think about when we think about Isabelle Huppert. But I still think Things to Come is the better performance. So can I ask if Piano Teacher is 2001 or 2000, right? Mm-hmm. So it's before this next one. Uh, Piano Teacher is listed as 2001. It was released in the States early 2002. All right. I'm going to risk embarrassing myself because she might not be in this movie at all and I might be thinking of a totally different movie but because I haven't seen it there was a movie called Eight Women and I don't know if she's in it or not but is it maybe that she is indeed in it she is incredible in it she is hilarious in it and it is on her known oh good okay all right i wouldn't i wouldn't have uh, picked this if there was something that you didn't know what the movie was um you would love this movie it's a musical it's wonderful is it, did it didn't it get like remade as something or am i thinking of something else i don't know about that but the distinction of a Eight Women is it's the movie that Uper she won with all of the actresses in the movie. They won Best Actress at the Berlin Film Festival, so it's the movie yeah. that got her a Best Actress prize at Cannes Berlin. I see. And like it's a bunch of like it's like Catherine Deneuve, right? Yes. Alright. See, I knew some stuff about it. I should see it. I was if not that, I was gonna guess like whatever the next Michael Hanukkah movie she made after the piano teacher that I couldn't remember yeah, which one that was, but I knew it was something. 
that I hadn't uh, seen? Time of the Wolf is after Piano Teacher, but there's right. also a more and Happy End. Well, yes. Yeah, Happy End was much, much later. But I knew there was one right in the early 2000s after Piano Teacher. But uh, glad I got it right with eight women. Yay. Yay. Fantastic. Yay. Guys, that is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Definitely tweet at us both your listener's choice submission and your mailbag questions, but you can also email those to hadoscarbuzz at gmail. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Sure. I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, Reed spelled the same way. I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File, dancing to Volk. We would like to thank <laughs> Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get those podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so stop working the polls for Blanc or Marcos and write us a nice review. <laughs> that is all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye. If your head hasn't been exploded in our Dance Academy basement. Blanc! I thought you were going to say Marcos. It's fine. Oh, Marcos. I'm not voting for Marcos. I'm going to make you vote for Marcos. I'm going to put you on the record as voting for Marcos. This is a lie. <laughs>